My grandmother loved to exercise her mind. She, for years, taught special education and uh, at Collins Riverside Middle School in Tuscaloosa and then GED classes afterwards and even worked a summer school class as well every summer. So when she graduated, uh, graduated when, she, when she retired, <laughs> when she retired, she wanted to continue to work her mind. So she enrolled and would continue to enroll in classes at Shelton State Community College. So you got a picture of my grandmother, 60, 70 years old, surrounded, spending her days during the week, surrounded by 18 to 22 year olds in these classes, and she still always had the highest grade in the class. She was especially smart and interested in foreign languages and in history, and it was her love of history that led her to begin to do genealogy work. Now maybe some of y'all have done genealogy work before, you know what I'm talking about, you're kind of digging into your background, figuring out who you're related to and that kind of stuff. She became fascinated in our family's history. And so I remember going with her to the Tuscaloosa Public Library, and we would enter the, um, the community, the, the public <laughs> records section of the library, and that place was like a ghost town. I mean, nobody ever walked into <laughs> where the public records are in the Tuscaloosa Public Library. And she would walk up to these books and she'd pull them down and dust would come off the top of them because nobody pulled them out. He'd sneeze because there's so much dust on them. And we carried these books over to the coffee machine and she had a purse that no kidding probably weighed 150 pounds. It was the size of a compact car. I'm not sure how that lady carried it. And she had, and she had everything you could ever imagine. If you've seen like Harry Potter where they pull out stuff out of backpacks, you're like, how's that fitting in there? That's how her purse was. She would get this purse and she would pull out a gallon-sized bag of quarters she had collected. And we'd make copy after copy after copy of these public records books uh, there in the public library. When her dementia got too bad, she had to stop. But before she stopped because of her dementia, you could go into her house and to her office and she had a bookshelf where Shelf after shelf after shelf was row and row and row of three ring binders filled with pictures, with articles, and with handwritten notes describing not only her life and the memory she had, but of our ancestors. And I remember her around Christmas time because she always every year would make a spiral notebook uh, and give it to everybody describing the lives of some of our ancestors. And we still have some of those spiral notebooks at our house. My grandmother loved to get into genealogy work because she loved to know not just where we came from, but the type of people that we came from. And so as we turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter Matthew begins his biography of Jesus in a way that we normally wouldn't begin a biography. He begins the biography with Jesus with a genealogy. That's not normal something if you open up a biography at Barnes and Noble or something. You don't normally expect to see the genealogy of the person on the front page. But that's what Moses, uh, sorry, Matthew did. And it makes sense when you realize who he's writing to, because he's writing for the Jews. And he's probably thinking about questions that the Jewish people have, questions that we struggle with too, such as, is God really forgiving me? And if he has forgiven me, can he really use me? Can he really bless me? Can he really be with me even though I'm forgiven? These are the issues that Matthew chapter 1 addresses. 
Genealogies were an important part back then in the first century and an important part for, bibli for biographies, which is why both Matthew and Luke included them. For people back then, they didn't see ancestors in these lists, as we'll see in a second, as mere facts of what people's family used to be or used to be like. They believed that you could tell who a person was based on who their ancestors were. And not only that, but the Jews in particular believed that every marriage was brought about by God's providence. So genealogy, in other words, was a history of God's providence in that family. And so this genealogy is a history of how God's providence worked to bring about his salvation in Christ through a specific family. But, before we get to this one, I do want to point out that Matthew and Luke has some differences. And if you look at Luke, you go, why? How, how, how is there differences between Matthew and Luke's genealogy? Why? It seems like everybody would be the same. They'd be in agreement on this. Well, there's a lot of explanations, but I'm going to give you guys, before we get started, in case you've ever wondered that, the two biggest reasons why they're different. And the first of those is this. Matthew is consumed and really obsessed with being organized and having structure. If you read his gospel, his gospel is really roughly in chronological order, but it's not exactly in chronological order because he loves being organized and having structure. And so he organizes his genealogy around three groups of 14. Well, why 14? Well, the, the central person other than Jesus is David. If you add up the letters, the consonants of David's name in the Hebrew alphabet, it's 4, 6, and 4, which equals 14. Not only that, 14 was 7 plus 7, so it was seen as a sign of completion or perfection. In other words, Matthew is trying to teach something using numbers, like a tax collector would. He's saying, hey, Jesus is not just somebody coming at a time. He's somebody coming at the perfect time. Three groups of 14. The second reason is you have to understand why they use genealogies and biographies. They were allowed to structure genealogies to bring about and bring and emphasize people that the biographer wanted to emphasize. And because of that, the word father could mean more than one thing. It can mean, like we take it as, to literally be somebody's father. But it could also mean to be somebody's grandfather. It could mean to be somebody's adopted father. It can even mean to have the right to an inheritance or position such as to have the right to inherit the throne. And a lot of commentators believe with Matthew, where Luke is following more of the physical descendants, Matthew is trying to show the line of royal inheritance. Where did the throne go after David? And he's using that sense in this a lot of times in his biography and genealogy here. So Matthew writes his genealogy, and he's basically at the very beginning laying his cards on the table, and he's telling us as we approach Jesus' story in the Gospels, we should already know something about Jesus. He's not just some baby born in Bethlehem on Christmas night. Jesus is the perfect king who came at the perfect time to establish God's perfect kingdom. And in this chapter, he shows what type of perfect king he is. To answer the questions, does God really love me? Can God really forgive me? Can God really use me? Because I struggle with the idea that I'm not perfect and I haven't been perfect. Does God really want to bless me and use me? Those are the things he wants to bring out. And he says to you, Jesus is a gracious king. That's what he's going to show you in this genealogy. And so let's read these first 14 
which is up, verses 1 through 6. It says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Benadab, Benadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David the king. So verse 1, Matthew starts off his genealogy, and, and he says two things that are odd. First, he says it's the genealogy of, which is one of the few other times it's used is in the book of Genesis, that phrase, the record of the genealogy of. But in Genesis, it's always used where it told the oldest descendant and then worked to the newest descendant. He never got to the newest descendant and worked backwards. So in a way, Jesus, he's saying, hey, where in the past, everybody's life is dictated by who their ancestors are. With Jesus, his ancestors are dictated by who Jesus is. And then he calls Jesus the Messiah in the NASB or the Christ. In your Bibles, it might say the Christ. Which is one of the few times he uses that phrase. And he's saying that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the anointed king. And so you get into verse 2. And immediately if you were the first century Jew. You would have recognized a lot of these names. You would have grown up in church. You would have heard these stories. And so it would almost be like fireworks popping at you. Every name that was read would have an explosion of memories. Of stories about who these people are. But verses 1 through 6 has three people that really stand out. Like beacons in a dark room. And it's the women. Genealogies normally back then didn't include women in here. So it's odd that Matthew would highlight three women in the first six verses of his genealogy. But it's really not that unusual when you realize what Matthew is trying to teach us. Because all three of these women had something in common. They were all believing outcasts. They were outcasts because they didn't belong to Israel in their nationality, and they're outcasts because their family situation, their relationship situation, was not what you would call to be the nuclear family. And so he first he says Tamar. It's kind of a story a lot of people don't realize. Tamar was a Canaanite woman who married Judah's son. Well, after a little bit of time. The son died, and Tamar was left without a son. And back then, that was a huge problem because inheritance was passed from father to son. So if you were a wife and your husband died and you didn't have a son, you were actually in danger of losing everything. But God had compassion on women who widows like that, and so he provided a way to help them called a Levite marriage. And in a Levite marriage... The father-in-law, who's Judah, is supposed to give Tamar his next son so that Tamar can continue to be cared for and that she can have the inheritance and that she doesn't have to be in poverty for her whole life. But Judah punts on that responsibility. Eventually, he, he doesn't give Tamar the son that she needs and the, his son. He doesn't give Tamar a husband. He essentially ghosts her, and she gets cast out of the family. So Tamar, she trusts in God's instruction and God's providence. And so she tricks, in a way, in a, in a long story, it ends up being that she tricks Judah into having a son with her. And when Judah finds out that he has a son with Tamar, he actually praises Tamar because he realizes that she followed God's instruction and that she trusted in God's grace where he didn't. 
And then you have in here the story of Rahab, which is probably related to a lady that happened in the book of Joshua. The Israelites were approaching the city of Jericho, and they were a formidable bunch. But in this city, God, Moses had sent out spies, and the spies were being chased. They were looking for a place to hide, and they couldn't find anything. And they end up walking into the house of a prostitute named Rahab. She was a prostitute. Rahab, though, <coughs> she had heard about Israel. She had heard about Israel's God, and she had always wanted to follow God. She believed full and wholeheartedly that if she that anyone who sides with God will be saved, but anybody who rejects God will be destroyed. And so when they, the spies come, she says, "Hey, come hide in my house." She hides them in her house, and then they tell her, "Hey, if you will get anybody into your house and trust us." You'll be saved. And that's what she does. She, because of her faith in God, that God will save her if she trusts in him, she gets her family into her house. When the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, not a salesperson, not a businessman, not a banker, not somebody rich, not a farmer, not a rancher, but a prostitute and her family are the only ones that are saved. Because she trusted in God's grace. And then you have Ruth. Ruth's story starts with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi and her sons travel to a foreign country named Moab, and one of her sons marries Ruth, a Moabite woman. But then he dies, and he leaves her no son. And we've already talked about why it's a problem that she doesn't have a son or any children. But Ruth was very young and very attractive. So Naomi turns to Ruth, and she says, Hey, I know that you're young and attractive. Stay in Moab. Find another husband, get married, and just leave me. No, no, Naomi says, just leave me to be poor and to be in despair and to be depressed for my whole life. And Ruth turns to her and says, no, I've trusted God, and I'm sticking with you. And she travels with Naomi back to Israel, and what can only be described as God's grace and providence on Ruth and Naomi. She runs into Boaz who is a distant relative of her uh, former husband, her late husband. And Boaz marries her. Boaz redeems her. She gets a son through Boaz. Naomi gets a grandson. And we see that God's grace fell upon her because she trusted in the Lord. So in these first few stories, these three women shine out because they normally don't include it. All three women had one thing in common. They were outcasts. They didn't belong in Israel nationally. They didn't belong in Israel because of their family situations. But because they had trust, because they had faith in the Lord, God showed his grace toward them. So we find out that Jesus is the king who gives grace to the believing outcast. Jesus didn't come from a perfect family. In fact, a lot of Jews were... Excited. They celebrated the fact that they had pure bloodlines. But it seems like Matthew goes out of his way to prove that Jesus doesn't have a quote-unquote pure Jewish bloodline. Because he wants to show that Jesus didn't just come for the people who are fluent and the people who are big and the people who should belong. Jesus came so that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ can be saved. Mm -hmm. And he can relate to them and he can uh, connect with them because his family was not perfect too. Jesus is a God who's gracious to the believing outcast. That's what happened on that Christmas night. When Jesus appeared, it wasn't to the, the government officials. It wasn't to the 
people who were in charge. It wasn't the people who were part of the in group in the schools or the people who had lots of money that God announced. It was to the outcasts that God announced he'd come. And you guys know this verse. Luke chapter 2, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord stood near them, and the glory of the Lord showed upon them, and they were terrified. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If you feel like you're an outcast and outsider, take heart, be encouraged, because Jesus has grace for the believing outcast. Let's see what kind of hints Matthew gives in these next verses about the type of king Jesus is. We're going to start again in verse 6. It says, Jesse fathered David the king, and David fathered Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, and Abijah fathered Asa, and Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, and Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, Josiah fathered Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of departure of the deportation to Babylon. So you get this second set of 14, and something would immediately would have stood out to the first century Jew, and that is the names of all these people are all huge, famous kings. This was a time in Israel's history that they never had before, and like they would never have again. The amount of wealth, the amount of prosperity, the amount of renown that these kings had was something they'd never seen before, and they would have recognized this time with these kings. But they also would have recognized something else with these names, and that is this is a mixed bag of people. Of people who, some of them are good and people who are, some of them are not very good. You have righteous people in this list, righteous people in this line. People like Jehoshaphat, people like Uzziah, people like Hezekiah who rebuilt the temple of God and who actually led a revival of people following God and saw huge revivals in the entire nation. Like the kind of thing we dream of here. These Kings led that in their nations. They did that, and they followed the Lord. They point to the great king who would come later in Jesus Christ. But there's also people in here who are really great <coughs> sinners. You have uh, people like Joram, or, jo or in the Hebrew it's Jehoram, who married um, the daughter of Ahab who was perhaps one of the worst, if not the worst king the northern Israel had. He killed the priests of God. He murdered the prophets of God. And Joram followed in his footsteps. You have people like Manasseh, who began to follow pagan religions and even burned his children alive as a sacrifice to pagan gods. Even took down the, the altar of God in the temple and put in a temple in the temple an altar to another God. That's how evil these guys were. Can you imagine throwing your child alive in the flames for a pagan God? That's how low some of these names are. In fact, it was so bad in Israel that God eventually allowed them to go into exile for 70 years by the Syrians and the Babylonians. To make it all clean, to kind of hit the reset button. You know, when you turn your phone off because so, it's glitching and it comes back on, it's reset. He basically hit the reset button on Israel and sent them into exile. 
uh, obviously something that was so huge that Matthew even notes it in his genealogy. Something so changing the whole nation of Israel. This mixed bad of good and, and uh, good and bad bad shows up at the very beginning with David. Like in the previous section, it, this section also has a woman. It says, uh, she who had been the wife of Uriah. What's different about verse 6 is that it doesn't mention her name. Unlike the previous three women, Bathsheba is not mentioned by name in here. Literally in the Greek, it's just by Uriah's wife. Because Matthew's not emphasizing Bathsheba, he's emphasizing David. If you remember the story, Uriah and David had been close friends, but one day Uriah was out fighting a battle for David. And while he was gone, David had committed adultery with Uriah's wife, and she got pregnant from him. And then in order to cover up that sin, he ordered that his friend be murdered so that he could marry Bathsheba and nobody would know what they did. And of course, God knew what they did, and he, David eventually repented and confessed and came back to God. But even at the very beginning, the guy who is given the only guy, that the whole list given the title, the king, was a mixed bag. He was a man after God's own heart, as 1 Samuel says. Somebody that one of the few people in the Bible even gives such a huge accolades to a man after God's own heart, but he was not perfect. He was not sinless. And so we see in this story that Jesus is the God who gives grace not just to the repentant righteous, but also to the repentant sinner. This would have been a huge blessing to Matthew, a huge encouragement to Matthew himself. Maybe why he included in here. Because Matthew was a tax collector, also called Levi. And as a tax collector, he was considered one of the worst sinners in the entire nation. They were greedy, they were thieves, they stole. They were backstabbers. They were betrayers. They were evil people that were just evil to people. And one day Matthew is at his tax booth. In other words, in the midst of that evil, what he's doing, Jesus walks up to him and says, come follow me. And Matthew accepts the call of forgiveness. And he is saved that day. And not only is he saved, but then Matthew says to Jesus, come on, why don't you come eat with me? So Jesus comes and eats with Matthew in his house, and this whole house is filled with Matthew's friends, who no shock are also huge sinners, and also some of them are tax collectors. And the righteous people in the city see that, and they're upset about it. And they begin to talk about that, and this is what it says. And said, the Pharisees saw this and said to Jesus' disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what it means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This genealogy is huge. Because it shows us just how far God would go for his grace. That God would work. It's amazing to see that God would work in his providence and his sovereignty to teach us to show that he is in the act of bringing about his grace to us. But it also shows us that not only does God bring forgiveness to us through Jesus, who sits at the end of this line, the end of this list of people, but he also is in the act of redeeming sinful situations in order to bring out the grace of Jesus in us. 
So Jesus is not only the king who extends grace to the bleeding outcast, he's the king who extends grace to the repentant sinner. And finally we see that Jesus is the king who extends grace to the forgotten faithful. Starting in verse 12, it says, After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconia followed Shealtiel, Shealtiel followed Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel followed Abihud, Abihud followed Eliakim, Eliakim followed Azor, Azor followed Zadok, Zadok followed Achim, Achim followed Iliad, Iliad followed Eleazar, Eleazar followed Mathen, Mathen followed Jacob, and Jacob followed Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation of Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. So what sticks out to you when you first read these names? I know what sticks out to me. I have no idea who these people are. Compared to the list in the previous two sections, outside of Joseph and Mary at the end and Zerubbabel at the very beginning, we have no idea who the rest of these people are on this list. They're not in the Bible. They're not in history books. They're not on scraps of stone that are scattered everywhere. They are forgotten. So why include these 14 names of people? We have no idea who they are or what they did. Well, there's two reasons I believe he did that. One is to show this, that even though the line of royal descent was silent, it was not gone. Every generation still had a person who could rightly sit on the throne of God, passed all the way from Zerubbabel to Jesus. And the second is this, that even though that line was forgotten, they were still faithful people in that line. How do I believe this? Well, we know about Zerubbabel from Ezra and Nehemiah, that he was faithful to the Lord, that he helped rebuild Jerusalem, he helped rebuild the temple, that he was a great God. And we know about Joseph and Mary. I mean, Joseph and Mary, they were uh, so faithful to the Lord, so close to the Lord, that God himself chose them to be the earthly parents of Jesus. The only people in history given that prestigious responsibility. So how do you get from faithful Zerubbabel to faithful Joseph and Mary? I have to believe that along the way, these guys, the majority of these guys, were faithful to God too. People don't remember them. Their names were not in headlines. They were not inscribed and given thrones. But they were faithful to the Lord even in their obscurity. They were faithful to pass down their faith to their children, to their grandchildren, to their neighbors, to their co-workers, all the way so that you could see the life from Zerubbabel to Joseph and Mary. Jesus is showing that he's also the God who graciously gives grace to the people who are faithful in him, even in their obscurity. That God works in us, and he works in Christians, as long as we are living out our lives correctly in a way that as we seek to live out our lives correctly and as we seek to pass down the good news of Jesus Christ to the next generations, that even if we feel like we're forgotten, even if we feel like we're obscure, God still has grace for us. I'm reminded of a story a pastor told me one time about a kid who was on the beach. And he was picking up starfish when they, it was early in the morning, they had been washed up because of the tide. So he was picking them up and he was throwing these starfish back into the sea. Well, this man was doing his morning walk on the beach, and he came and saw this kid throwing starfish into the sea. And so he ran up to him and said, hey, why are you doing that? Why are you tossing these starfish back there? 
And the kid turned to the man and said, well, if the starfish are left out here, that when the sun comes out, they'll burn and they'll die. The man looked down the beach and he said, but there are maybe millions of starfish down this beach. Why do you think you're making any difference to anything? And the kid looked at the starfish in his hand and he tossed it into the sea and he said it made a difference to that one. You know why I feel burnt out and tired picking up more scraps of paper off the classroom floor? Wondering how much more green beans can I cook for people who are shut in? Wondering what, what another phone call would do to somebody who's, uh, who's gotten cancer and don't go to church anywhere. Another prayer for somebody who needs Christ, talking to them about Christ, inviting them to go to church. You might feel burnt out. You might feel like you're not being noticed. You're not being seen, that nobody cares, that nothing's really happening. But the news is that God sees and God cares. And it matters to that one. And how awesome it to think that Jesus is not just the king who comes for people who are sitting on thrones, who are giving huge speeches, who are making headlines, who are making lots of money. But he's come for the people who are living normal lives, day in and day out, barely making it by, who are going to be remembered for a few generations and then forgotten. It's those people that Jesus has come and he's extended grace to also. Jesus is the God who gives grace to the faithful even who live in obscurity. Mary is a perfect example of that. Just like in the other sections, he brings out another woman in this last section to point this out. We never would have learned about Mary if she had not given birth to Jesus. She was just a teenage girl in a little tiny town in a rural setting who really didn't do any much. She probably wasn't going to be anything. She probably wasn't going to do much. But before that angel came to her that night, she was faithful to follow God even in obscurity. And God used her powerfully then by allowing her to give birth to the Son of God himself. In fact, he even emphasizes this fact in this part by saying that Mary is the Mary uh, begat Jesus by whom Jesus was born. Literally, the Greek says Mary begat Jesus. One of the few times that kind of phrase is ever used because it's never said that a woman begat somebody. It always says that it's a man. And it reminds me of what happens and is a reminder to Genesis 3.15 at the very beginning of the Bible where God says to the serpent, I will make enemies of you and the woman of your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so we see that Jesus is the king who gives grace to the faithful who are forgotten, who might be forgotten. So in Matthew genealogy, we have this. Not just a line of people that we breeze through as we're going around Christmas time and skip that have no real meaning to what's going on, but we see Matthew trying to teach us something about who this king is before the story of Jesus even begins in verse 18. We see that on that Christmas night, Jesus, when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, that he wasn't just some baby born in Bethlehem, but he was the perfect king who came at the perfect time to redeem God's people. And we see that he is the king who gives grace to the believing outcast, the repentant believer, and the faithful for God. So maybe as I've been talking, God has struck a chord in you sitting here today. Maybe you've felt like you belong in one of those categories, the outcast, the sinful, the forgotten, and you feel like God has spoke to you today. Call out to him. 
place your faith in him, believe in him, commit to him, and celebrate and thank him for the fact that he shows grace to us. Maybe you're here today or you've been joining us online listening and you hear about Jesus coming not just to be born on Christmas Day but to die for our sins. That Jesus came as a baby so he could live for us, so he could die for us, so he could have a relationship with for us. Also, we can have faith by faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to place your faith in Jesus and start a relationship with God, come talk to me today. Online, you can comment below or go to greensportbaptistchurch at gmail.com and email us there. I'd love to talk to you. But as ever God has spoken in your heart, you do as God has called you to today.